All right, good evening. So welcome back. This is class number two of the Hidden Miracle series studying Megillas Esther. And I want to begin by going back to the end of the last chapter. We actually left one verse over that we didn't discuss yet, the final verse. But even before we do that, I just want to review or come back to some points that I think I maybe rushed through at the end, but I think are very important that we highlight and bring out. So I actually put back on the on the source sheet from chapter one, the final two verses. And we learned last week that there was a process by which Ahasuerus, the king, the Persian king, was granted great power at this at this time that uh, we learned, according to the Malbim, that that was actually his goal of the whole party, but it finally came to fruition at the end where his advisor, Memuchan, which according to our sages was actually Haman, advised him to, first of all, make a, enact, enact a, a, I guess you enacting, an enactment, um, that would give him full power and the officials present would sign on to that. And not only that, but he told him, he advised him to get rid of Vashti. Now it's very fascinating because just moments before, Ahasuerus was doing all that he could to try to save Vashti. As, as soon as Vashti got in trouble, we learned that Ahasuerus was actually advocating for her. He was trying to, trying to save her trying to bring out that bring it bring it about that she should not have to be deposed not have to be killed that nothing should happen to her and then and then all of a sudden there's like an about face Memuchan advises him you know, you should get rid of Vashti and it says in the verse the matter pleased the king and the princes and everyone present and they all signed off on it so this is something that we have to note, that this is all part of the miracle, part of God pulling the strings, was this about face that Ahasuerus had where, okay, well, fine, good idea, let's, let's get rid of Vashti. And, uh, and, that's, and that's what happens. So that's one thing that I think we have to take note of. And the second thing is that, as I just mentioned, there was some amount of power being transferred over to Ahasuerus. The way that we presented it was primarily based on the Malbim, who understood that Ahasuerus was being granted absolute power at this point, absolute control. He could make his own laws. He could do what he wants. Others explain it slightly differently. For example, the Vilna Gaon says that actually he wasn't being given all power, but he was being granted the power to rule in cases and situations, even when they were relevant to himself prior to this. If it was something that he might have um, a bias in, he would have to step aside and leave that ruling up to his officials. And here he was being granted the power even to rule in cases which were relevant to himself, which would later end up being very important when, uh, when it was time for Haman to go, that he'd be able to just make the call that Haman should be killed. But whatever whichever way we understand that there's, there's a certain amount of power being handed over to Ahasuerus, which is going to be very important as the story continues. And even that, it's like, you have all these officials sitting there and they just 
take out their pens and they sign it away. They sign away their own power and they say, okay, yeah, we are going to hand you absolute control. And again, this is going to be very important in the end. And this is another miraculous event that would go unnoticed if we weren't paying close attention. So uh, just wanted to bring out those two important points. And now let's look at the final verse of chapter one. It says there, verse 22, and he sent letters to all the king's provinces. So the king sends out letters to every province according to its script. So the different provinces had different uh, languages that they spoke and different, different scripts. And to every nationality according to its language. So the letters were in all languages so everybody could understand them. And what was in this letter? That every man dominate in his household and speak according to the language of his nationality. So as we, as we saw last week, there was this concern that people will think that it, since Vashti refused Ahasuerus, that maybe a woman should have some degree of power in her home. And this was something that the advisors of Ahasuerus you know, said, we can't have that. We can't have that in our kingdom. And if people hear what Vashti did, it's going to be terrible. And, and Ahasuerus actually sends out a, a letter, a command, that each man should dominate. He should, the man should be in charge of the house. He should be the man of the house. And they should speak the language of, its, of his nationality, which doesn't seem so significant, so important. But that's, you know, if you have a, a mixed marriage, two different languages, you follow the, the, the language of the husband. The husband is in charge. That was the letter, the, the, the edict that Ahasuerus had sent out at that time. Now, the Talmud has a fascinating comment over here. The Talmud, which is in source number two, it says that if you, if you look at the second line there, it says, Rava said, in the underlined, were it not for the first letter sent by Ahasuerus, there would not have been left among the enemies of the Jewish people, which really means the Jewish people. It's just we don't want to say that. There would have been nothing left of the Jewish people, a remnant or a refugee. If not for these first letters, there would be nothing left of the Jews. In other words, the Talmud is saying that these letters that he sent out, that every man should dominate in his home, were themselves part of the miracle. If not for these letters, there would be nothing left of the Jewish people. And then the Talmud explains why. It says, and really actually Rashi in his commentary helps us out. Rashi says, it's also there, for they would have hurried to kill the Jews at the command of the king, when the next letters were sent and would not have waited until the designated date. Let's understand that in a moment. If you continue on the next line, it says that they who received them would say, meaning they received these letters, and they would say, what is this that he has sent us? That every man shall wield authority in his own house? This is obvious. Even a lowly weaver is commander in his house. So they got these letters and they just seemed ridiculous to them. They said, all, all, all the people throughout the provinces, they said, Oh, you know, the man is always ruling in the house. And so these letters are, there's something weird about this king. There's something a little bit off about him. Now, why was that important? What was important was that later, it's going to be a few years before it happens, but sometime later, which seems to be the next time he sent an edict all around the, to all his provinces, was the command that they would, on a designated date, the 13th of Adar, wipe out the Jewish people. So 
the people got this letter. Now, there were plenty of people that had no liking and great hate for the Jewish people. And they, seeing the opportunity, they would have jumped at it, not waited until the designated date. They were like, oh, he wants us to wipe them out. Let's go. Let's do it right now. Why are we waiting? But because he had sent this first letter, they didn't know if they should take him seriously. And so they delayed. That's how that's how Rashi interprets it. That's, that's what the Talmud seems to be saying here. If not for those letters, where, which made people think that this, this king is crazy, should we really take his letters seriously? Then there would be nothing left of the Jewish people. They would have rushed to wipe them out as soon as they got the letters. That's, uh, that's what the Talmud says. Now, we're going to mention actually three other explanations for why these letters were so pivotal in the in 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 the story um so the first is that the malbim again building off of his whole approach that there was absolute power being handed over to achashverosh these letters or or the, the letters that had previously been signed somewhere over here we have that that the, this key moment going on this is all part of this Achashverosh being handed over absolute power. And he understands that that's what, if we take a step back, the Talmud says, Rava said, it's like if we're not for the first letters, there would not have been left among the enemies of the Jewish people. And then the Talmud goes on to explain why. But commentaries offer, uh, offer other reasons. Why, what was so important about the letters? So besides for the Talmud's own explanation, that it was because they thought he was crazy, Another explanation is that because these letters were, to some extent, the first exercising of his absolute power, and if not for that absolute power, there would be nothing left to the Jewish people. That's how the Malbim understands what's going on here. That's, if not for this absolute power that was granted to him, well, later on, after he has signed away, you know, with his advisors, with Haman, he signs away the, uh, the, the lives of the Jewish people. So later he wants to rescind that. He doesn't rescind it. He will learn about exactly what he does. But the way that he that 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 they are able to maneuver and 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 change things later on is only because of the power that was granted to him at this point. And so that's how the Malbim interprets this. If not for the power that was granted to him at this point, there would be nothing left, no remnant left of the Jewish people. Now a third approach to why these letters were so important um, actually focuses more on the second part of the, of the letter, which has to do with everyone speaking their own language, which seems just random, right? What, what's that doing there? So there's one thing that we didn't really discuss last week, which is probably uh, surprising maybe to some that we didn't discuss it because it's something that we probably are mostly familiar with, which is, you know, we had Achashverosh, throws this big party. <clears throat> now, one thing that we didn't talk about at all last week was how the Jewish people attended that party, which when we think about this party, that's one of the things I think that most people think about. What we saw last week is it actually doesn't mention that anywhere in the Megillah explicitly that the Jews attended the party of Achashverosh. That is part of our Midrashic and Talmudic tradition, that that was an important aspect of it. You know, when something terrible befalls the Jewish people or nearly befalls the Jewish people, we have to do some um, 
you know, we have to contemplate and, uh, and look in, internally, examine what may be led to these events. Because we believe that no events are random. And, and these types of things happen as a result of our actions. And sometimes we don't know. And sometimes we have a tradition that tells us what it was or what it could have been. So the Talmud, the Midrash, both point to the Feast of Ahasuerus. The reason why the Jewish people possibly could have suffered greatly or been wiped out was because they attended the Feast of Ahasuerus. So putting aside, you know, is that, you know, the question, is that like, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, how does the, the punishment match the, the, the sin? But this was sinful. There were certainly, like we say, it wasn't a place for, for a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl to be at that party, um, probably for many reasons. And the question then is, why did they, why did the Jewish people still attend? What was it that, that, that drew them there? So Rabbi Yosef Salat, who was a rabbi in Jerusalem in the 50s, beautiful work he has called Be'er Yosef, he suggests that the Jewish people understood that it wasn't ideal for them to be at this party, but they felt that if they don't attend, people are going to say, you know, everybody's here except the Jews. There they go again, trying to be different, not just not going along with what everybody else is doing. And the truth is, though, that... And, and therefore, they, they uh, you know, they, they felt they need to attend. Otherwise, it's not going to look good. Now, at the end of the day, if it's somewhere where they shouldn't be, then they shouldn't be there, even if it doesn't look good. But more than that, we're not supposed to be the same as everybody else. We're supposed to have a unique identity and not just go along with everything that everybody else is doing. We have our own Torah. We have our tradition that we are supposed to keep to. And God says, I will separate you from the other nations. And sometimes if we get too close and we make ourselves too similar, God says, if you're not going to separate yourself, then I will separate yourself. So, and then, so a clear separation is made where the Jew Jewish people are singled out. And uh, this has happened throughout, throughout our, our history. And this is what is going on in, in this story. Here they try to, they attend because I, you know, we have to go along with what everybody else is doing. We can't look different, but it's not always the right uh, and often not the right, the right call. We don't do things just because everybody else is doing it. We do what's right. We do what we're supposed to do. And so there was a certain claim against the Jewish people at this time by God that uh, you brought, you made yourself too similar to the nations of the world. Now, we find a similar thing in Egypt, actually. There are mid, there's Midrash, our sages teach us, again, the same thing that, that as the slavery was, was coming, was arriving, which they knew, they had a prophecy, God told Abraham they would be slaves in a foreign land. Also, they tried to, to make themselves similar in certain ways to the Egyptians. However, the Midrash teaches us that there were a few things that they kept separate, and that was a merit for them for redemption. So the, merit, the Midrash says they didn't change their names, they didn't change their language, and they didn't intermarry. Now, in, uh, in, in the current uh, Persia, 
in the current uh, exile there that we're discussing, if you look in, in the book of Ezra, which also is the, from the same time period, so it's clear that there was plenty of intermarriage going on. It's also clear that they kept, that they kept their, their Jewish names. So on the one hand, they kept their Jewish names. On the other hand, they were intermarrying. So they didn't have all of these things going for them like they did in Egypt. What about their language? Did they keep their language? So, so along come a number of commentaries and they say that Ahasuerus actually helped them out in this regard. Ahasuerus helped them out because in this edict, it said in this verse, right? That everybody should speak according to the language of his nationality meaning not specifically the husband, but, but in each province, there wouldn't be like a melting pot, one language. Everybody could speak their own language. And so the Jewish people were able to maintain their own language as a result of Ahasuerus' edict. So this turns around and actually becomes to their benefit. It's a merit for them because it helps them keep their identity. Here they are in exile. There's risk of assimilation. They're making, they're becoming very similar to the, to the Gentiles around them. And Ahasuerus gives them a little assistance in uh, helping preserve their Jewish identity when he says everybody, can, everybody could and should keep their own language. So they, they may have been intermarrying, but on the other hand, at least they kept their, their names, their Jewish names, and they kept their language. And that those, you know, they got two out of three. That was a merit for them. And perhaps that was part of, that was, that was a pivotal part of meriting the salvation that they eventually merit. So that's another way to understand, if not for these original letters, there would be nothing left to the Jewish people, because if not for these letters, then they would have assimilated even more and not had the merit to be saved. Okay. We're going to offer one more explanation of that line of that idea that if not, of why these letters were pivotal, but we'll wait a little bit until we get into the next chapter before we, before we do that. So we're, we're ready for chapter two. And uh, chapter two begins after these events. When King Ahasuerus' fury subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed upon her. So after these events, how long after? How long did it take for the king's fury to subside? So it's debated, of course, because it doesn't say explicitly. Um, but Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz, great uh, 16th century, 17th century Kabbalist, in his commentary, the Megillah, he explains, I guess 16th century probably, um, he explains, he thinks that it was a while after because we know that Ahasuerus made his party in the third year of his reign. And we also know that it wasn't until the seventh year of his reign that Esther became queen. So, and this is the begin, going to be the beginning of the search for a queen. So there's four years between when she becomes queen and when Vashti is killed. So this is sometime in between that but you can deduce it's at least two years later. So there's a while after. It takes a while for, his, for, for Ahasuerus' fury to subside. And the verse says that he remembered Vashti and what she had done and, and what had been decreed upon her. Meaning 
that he remembered that they had decreed that she should be killed. And also that he would then need to look for a new queen. Remember, that was the recommendation of Memuchan was get rid of Vashti and give and find yourself a queen that's better than her. So he had accomplished the first task, but now he realized it's time to accomplish the second task and find himself a queen. And he, he mentions this to his, uh, to his, his servants. And then it says in verse two, and the king's young man, his servant said, let them seek for the king young maidens of comely, beautiful appearance. And let the king appoint commissioners to all the provinces of his kingdom. Let them gather every young maiden of beautiful appearance to Shushan, the capital, to the house of the women, to the custody of Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, and let their ointments be given to them. So these young servants hatch a plan for Ahasuerus to help him to help him find his next queen. So again, different ways to understand. Of course, as I mentioned, there's so many different commentaries, but the way that one way to understand this in the commentary of Yosef Lekach was that their plan was as follows. First of all, they said we should find young maidens of beautiful appearance. Now that seems kind of obvious, right? Of course, the king is going to want someone who's beautiful. So what were they saying as opposed to someone who's not beautiful? No, that's not what they were saying. And <clears throat> they were saying someone who's beautiful as opposed to focusing on other traits or other factors such as lineage. You don't need someone who's from royalty. That's not important. In fact, that was trouble for you last time around. The reason why Vashti was willing to stand up to you was because she felt she was from she was from royal blood and that made her more arrogant and she stood up to you. So for your new queen, you don't need someone of royal blood. Just find someone beautiful and that's it. That's all you need. And their plan was, now you can't just bring thousands and thousands of beautiful women to Shushan. The king is going to spend the rest of his life trying to find a wife. So the plan was, as the verse says, appoint commissioners to all the provinces. Let them gather every young maiden of beautiful appearance. Um, and, and then, and then they would, from the ones that they originally gathered, they would each choose the most beautiful from each province. So in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it first says, um, in verse two, it says, let them seek out for the king young, young maidens in the plural. And then in the in the in verse three, it says, um, "All every young every maiden." Instead of in the Hebrew, it could have been in the plural again, but it's not. In, in the Hebrew, it could have been "naarot" both times, but it's not. So there's this change that goes on between the first verse and the second verse, verse two and verse three. And Yosef Lakach explains that that's bringing out this idea that originally what they would do was they would gather all the maidens in each of the provinces, all of the most beautiful women. And these, these, uh, these commissioners, these people assigned to each province would be in charge of, would be in charge of finding 
the most beautiful from that province. And then they would bring that one girl to the palace so that there, we knew, we learned last week, there were 127 provinces. So altogether, there would be 127 girls from which the king would select his new wife. But really, the pool is much larger at the beginning, and they, they would narrow it down, and then he would select from 127. I think others understand differently. They actually, there were many, many more than that brought to Shushan. But that's how Yosef Lekach explains it. And one other point here is that they wanted to appoint new commissioners to the provinces. The commentaries explain that they needed new commissioners, meaning new people in charge. Somebody who's been around a while, so he's more comfortable. He has relationships with people. They could bribe him. He may, you know, they could, they, Achashverosh won't necessarily get everyone that he wants to get. But if you appoint new, new commissioners, new people in charge, then they weren't willing to accept bribes. Nobody, nobody would be able to hide their daughters, just slip a few, you know, a few dollars to the, to the commissioner. No, this way, everybody who would, all of the beautiful girls would be found and they would, he, and they would choose from all of them. But you get the sense here that the, the commentaries say that there was maybe some hesitance. Nobody, not everybody wanted their daughter to be taken to, uh, to Shushan to be the queen. Um, they remembered what, first of all, they remembered what happened to the previous queen. But besides for that, the chances of your daughter being selected was pretty slim, right? They're choosing from thousands and thousands of, of women. And chances are she would be sent home embarrassed and uh, no longer a, a virgin, as we'll see. And uh, that, uh, you know, would, would not be something that people wanted. So, so they might try to avoid this, this draft. And uh, in order to, to make sure that that didn't happen, so they appointed new commissioners that wouldn't be able, wouldn't accept bribes. Okay, verse number four. So the, they then advise and let the maiden who pleases the king reign instead of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did so. Um, so here is a very important point in this verse, which is, Who's going to make this decision? Who's going to be the next queen? Only one person, the king, on his own, without input from others. Let the maiden who pleases the king, that's whoever pleases the king, that's who's going to reign instead of Vashti. Nobody else is going to have a say. Nobody else needs to have a say. Again, this is all part of the power that's been conferred upon Ahasuerus. You know, something this important if we were dealing with something more of a constitutional monarchy, then some of the advisors may you know, want to have a say, or the officials or the, the government, they might get involved and say, well, you can't take her. She's just not going to, it's not going to work out. It's not going to be good for our relationships with other places, you know, all sorts of things that could be calculated, but they left it completely up to the king. And that, of course, was... Uh, it was pivotal and in him being able to just select Esther when it's Esther's turn. So, so that's, the, that's the plan. And now the Megillah introduces us to Mordechai and Esther. 
So verse five, it says, there was a Judean man in Shushan, the capital. Ish Yehudi Hayab Shushan Abira. There was a Yehudi, a Jew in Shushan, the capital, whose name was Mordechai, son of Yair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. The commentaries point out here that typically you might see in the, in the Hebrew, instead of saying Ish Yehudi Haya, there was a man, it would say Vayahi Ish. But many verses start Vayahi, and there was. The Megillah starts Vayahi, and there was. Um, the, the, the idea here of switching around a little bit, it's hard to bring out in the English, but is that the, the, the Megillah is stressing there was already a man in Shushan whose name was, was Mordechai. We mentioned last week from the Vilna Gon that the, but, and the many different commentaries in different ways, but Achashverosh moved the capital to Shushan. Whether it was because his throne happened to be there, or whether it was just to show off his power, to show that he can do things his own way, but he moved the capital of the empire to Shushan. This verse is telling us the real reason why he moved to Shushan. There was already a Jewish man named Mordechai living there. And that Jewish man, Mordechai, is going to be a catalyst in the salvation of the Jewish people here. And God was positioning everything for the salvation. And therefore, God brought Achashverosh to Mordechai. God brought Achashverosh to Shushan. And that's what it's bringing out here. There was already a Jewish man in Shushan whose name was Mordechai. And, uh, and, and at the time that Achashverosh moved to Shushan. And it describes who he was. It says he had been exiled from Jerusalem with the exile. That was exiled, exiled with Yechoniah, king of Judah, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. There were stages of the, different stages to the exile. And uh, one of those stages was when Yechoniah was exiled and along with him was Mordechai. We'll talk about that again in a moment. Verse seven, and he had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maiden was of comely form and of comely appearance. Again, she was beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordechai took her to, to himself for a daughter. So Esther is his niece, um, actually his cousin, sorry, his uncle's daughter. Um, she is his, his, his first cousin, and, uh, and she didn't have a father or mother. Her parents died, and he took her in and raised her like a daughter. Um, just talk about Esther's name for a second here. Um, it says, he had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. So what was her name? Was her name Esther or was her name Hadassah? So there's different opinions in the Talmud whether her real name was Hadassah and they call her Esther or her real name was Esther and they call her Hadassah. The most simple approach is one of the opinions in the Talmud. Rabbi Nehemia concurs and says Hadassah was her real name. Why then was she called Esther? This was her non-Hebrew name. For owing to her beauty, the nation of the world called her after Istahar, which is Venus. So, uh, but what it means is that she had a Persian name, Esther. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah, and her Persian name was Esther. Um, some commentaries suggest that actually Mordechai changed her name at this juncture when she's going to be about to be taken to the palace. So he tells her, you know, in the palace, don't go by the name Hadassah anymore. That will be obvious that you're Jewish. 
go by the name Esther, and uh, which is a Persian name, and that will that will cover up for you. And uh, and we'll talk about why why he wanted to cover that up. But uh, but that's that's the one of the approaches to her name. Her real name was Hadassah, her Hebrew name, and when she was taken to the palace, she went by Esther, which was a Persian name. Now the Malbim understands that these verses are trying to bring out the level, the degree of difficulty that it would have been for Mordechai to hide Esther and to show that despite that, he tried and they tried and they tried as hard as they could to keep Esther from being selected. Esther was beautiful and, uh, and they understood that she could possibly be selected and they did all that they could to make sure or to try to make sure that she does not get selected and brought to the king's palace. Um, and again, this is going to be, this is important to understand again, the level of the miracle. They were doing everything that they could that she not be selected. And yet she somehow still ends up being chosen. So, so the Malbim walks us through these verses five, six, and seven. He says, first of all, it says, there was an Ish Yehudi, a Judean man. So, um, so, and he, he had already lived in, he lived in Shushan. Now, if he lived further away, so he could have claimed when the guards would come, again, we're trying to show actually the risk that he was undertaking by trying to hide her. The law was you had to hand over your, your beautiful daughters, bring them out. And he was trying to hide her. So there was a great risk in doing this because he didn't really have any excuse. He lived in Shushan, which was the capital. Everybody knew about the edict. If he lived far away, so maybe he could have claimed, I didn't know, I didn't hear about it. The letter never reached me. In Shushan, that was no excuse. So number one, he was in Shushan. Um, number two, his name was Mordechai. He was, a, he, was a, he was a prominent figure. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish people. He was prominent. Otherwise, he might have argued, been able to argue that, you know, I didn't produce, I didn't bring her out because I thought like, you know, who am I? We're nothing. So, you know, we're not, nobody's interested in us, but he was a prominent person. So that wasn't a, a good excuse. Um, in fact, he was a descendant of King Shaul, King Saul, as was Esther. So they actually came from royal lineage. So they had, they had certain prominence. And so he couldn't have made the, the excuse, oh, you know, I didn't think that anybody would be interested in me. Um, he was a, he was a refugee. He, he originally was exiled. He was part of the exile from Jerusalem. So again, that, uh, he, 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 he had to show appreciation if he was a, you know, a, a long-term, a long-time citizen. So then it wasn't as much risk to him if he, if he didn't go along with the law. Okay. You know, they may have punished him a little bit, but not so bad. But if he, he was a refugee you know, and they're, they're giving him safe haven here and still he breaks the law. So that's very risky for him. And yet he still tried to hide her. Um, furthermore, he was in exile with Yechania. Now, who was exiled with Yechania? The leaders, the prominent people the, with King Yechania, again, showing his prominence. Even though he was in exile, he couldn't say, oh, therefore, again, like, 
who would want us? We're not important. We're not prominent. But he was he was part of uh, he was part part of those who were exiled because of their prominence, because of their positions. So so he really had little little to no excuse if he would get caught trying to hide Esther. Um, and it says he had brought up Esther. So and that was known. And um, he was related to her and she didn't have a father. She, he was completely in charge of her and he couldn't have, and he couldn't have excused himself and said, well, you know, she doesn't listen to me. You know, I, I was telling her to, to come out and she wouldn't listen. No. So him, all of this that he's hiding her with really no excuse for it is putting himself at great risk and her, but they, uh, but they dig it anyways. Now, <clears throat> We, I mentioned earlier that there is a fourth approach to understand why those original letters were so important. Those letters saying that a man should rule in his household. So let's just read verse eight and then we'll come back to that. So verse eight, it says, and it came to pass when the king's order and his decree were heard and when many maidens were gathered to Shush on the capital to the custody of Haggai, the Esther was taken to the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. So the Vilna Gong explains this verse that it came to pass that the king's order and his decree were heard. There seemed to be two different things here. There were two different stages. There was the original order. And for that time, Mordechai was able to hide Esther. But then they got even stricter. And then they said, if, if, if whoever's hiding a, a, a beautiful maiden will be put to death. That was the, that was the decree. And yet he still tried to hide her. They still tried to hide her. And, uh, but she was found and they brought her to the custody of Haggai. They brought her to the palace. Now, the, the Hassam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, quotes from his teacher, Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz, that another explanation for why those letters were so pivotal, that was the if not for those letters that said that the that the man is in charge of the house it's possible that that Esther would have actually succeeded in hiding and never would have been found why he says because because what did those letters say they said that the man should be in charge of the house now if there was no law to that point to that effect then they would be able to hide her. They would say that the, the guards would come. They'd say, oh, we heard there's a beautiful girl here. And Mordechai would say, well, uh, she went out shopping. I'm sorry, she's not here, right? And uh, they'd say, oh, okay. Like, let us know when she gets back, right? And then uh, each time they would come, he'd say, I, I tried to keep her here for you and she just won't listen to me. But, uh, but he says, but since the law was that, uh, that the, the man is in control of, of, of the house, so therefore, he couldn't make such an excuse. She had to listen to him by law. And, and therefore, she was unable to, they were unable to, to, to scheme in this way that she should be able to avoid the guards. And therefore, eventually, she was found. And of course, it's very important that she was eventually found because she is needed to become the queen. So that's another explanation for if not for those original letters, then there will be no one left of the Jews because if not for those letters, Granting the man full power in the house, 
then Esther would have been able to uh, be out of the house without, and, and, and Mordechai would throw up his hand and say, well, you know, I have no control over her. I, I tried to convince her to stay, but, uh, but because the order was that the, the, the man is in charge, so then he would, he would not be able to make such an excuse. Okay, cute idea. So, uh, so they bring Esther to the palace. Now, as I mentioned, there was great risk that uh, both Mordechai and Esther undertook in trying to hide her, but they were found. So you would. So what's going to happen to them? Seemingly, they should be punished for trying to avoid avoid the the king's orders. That was the you know if you don't listen to the king, you get killed. You get the death penalty. But that's not what happens, and it's quite miraculous. So it says in verse nine. And the maiden pleased him. So she's brought to Haggai. Haggai's in charge of all the, the girls to get them ready to see the king. And the maiden pleased him and she won his favor. So instead of her being punished, instead of him, Mordechai being punished, it kind of all fades away. They forget about it. They like her so much. And, uh, and they miraculously, despite their, their efforts higher, they get away with it and nothing happens to them. The maiden pleased her. She won his favor. And not only that, but he hastened her ointments and her portions to give them to her. He like gave her extra service. Um, he didn't take his time. He, he, he put her first. Um, he gave her seven maidens fitting to give her from the king's house. That usually the queen was given seven maidens. He's already like conferring on her almost the, the title of queen. He's giving her seven maidens. He changed her and her maidens to the best portions in the house of the women. He's favoring her. He really likes her. She has won his favor, the favor of Haggai. Maybe some understand already Achashverosh has his eye on her. And that's where this is all coming from. But, but either way, she's immediately taken in and, 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 and loved and favored. And all that risk that they undertook, at least for now, they are safe from. Now, now we come to verse 10, which is the famous idea, but difficult to understand. Esther did not reveal her nationality or her lineage, for Mordechai had ordered her not to reveal it. And every day Mordechai would walk about in front of the court of the house of the women to learn of Esther's welfare and what would be done to her. So he stays around to, to check on her, um, but he tells her not to reveal her nationality or her lineage. And the question is why? We know this, right? We know she, no, she never revealed her. Mordechai tells her, you, you know, don't reveal who you are. But why? Why did he tell her that? So there's actually <clears throat> a few different ex possible explanations offered. Um, one is, very simply, you know, if she won't tell them who she is, well, let's go the other way. If they would, if she would tell them who she is, what her nationality is, what her lineage is, They'll say, oh, wow, you know, you're of royal lineage. You come from King Shaul. Wow, that's, you know, you are fit for the, for the, to be the queen. Again, not necessarily knowing maybe that they are not looking for that even, but, uh, but that's what, they don't want to be chosen. They don't want Esther to be chosen. So they don't want to let on that she comes from a royal family. Um, again, they're doing all that they can to avoid to avoid any, uh, to avoid her being selected. 
Another possibility, like we just learned, they went, they, they put themselves at great risk to hide her. And then she was found. But they don't necessarily remember the guards and everything exactly where she came from, um, who her people are. It could be that if they would have found out at this time, at this moment when they brought her, if she would have told who she was, they would say, okay, now we're going to punish those who tried to hide you, Mordechai and your people. Um, so therefore, Mordechai said, don't let them know who you are. If you don't let them know who you are, who your family is, etc., then we will be safe. And it was to protect themselves at this time. Now, she continued to do this even later when that reason wasn't, wasn't relevant anymore. But at the very beginning, at least, it may have been just to protect her family and her people from, uh, from punishment for trying to hide her and avoid, the, uh, avoid being drafted. Um, but a third possibility, which is kind of the opposite of the first one, but it's worth mentioning, is that when, remember, there's not so many women actually being selected to be brought to the palace. Mordechai senses that there's something going on here already. And he certainly realizes this later, once she is chosen to be queen, he tells her, you know, you have to intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. Who knows that this is why you became queen? He senses this God's hand here. And it could be already at this time, he realizes there's something more going on. If she's already been chosen to be brought to the palace, you know, the kind of this funny feeling that maybe, maybe she's going to actually be chosen to be queen. Now, why that means she should hide her identity. So, because it could be that if Ahasuerus knew that she was Jewish, then he wouldn't select her. So this is, again, like the totally opposite approach. Up to now, we've been saying they've been trying to avoid being selected. Uh, but others say, at this point, Mordechai realized that maybe she should be selected. Maybe there's something deeper going on here. If, it, if, so, many, if, if it's so many things have fallen into place already, that she's been brought to the palace, et cetera, maybe this is supposed to, maybe this is supposed to happen and we shouldn't get in the way. And so, and so he says, don't tell who you are. If you would tell who you are, if you would know you're Jewish, he's not going to choose you. Could be that God's plan here is that you be selected and you're going to play an important role later. So those are three possibilities. Again, either he wanted to, they, they didn't want to be selected. They didn't want her, they didn't want Ahasuerus to know that she came from royal lineage or the opposite. They did want to be selected. So they didn't want him to know that she's Jewish or they just didn't want Ahasuerus or the people, the guards to know who her family was because they might then punish her family or nation or whoever was involved in hiding her. Okay, verse 12. And when each maiden's turn arrived to go to King Ahasuerus, after having been, been treated according to the pr practice prescribed for the women for 12 months, for so were the days of their ointments completed, six months with myrrh oil and six months with perfumes and with the ointments of the women. So there's a 12-month preparation period before the maidens are brought to the king, um, where they, they receive all sorts of oils and ointments, etc., preparing them for that meeting with the king. Um, the Malbim says that they wanted the, to see the girls in all seasons to make sure that uh, they, you know, during the winter, they don't get sick or, you know, that they're strong and that their skin is good, etc. 
They wanted to see them in all in all the different uh, all the different seasons. Verse thirteen. Then with this, the maiden would come to the king. Whatever she would request would be given to her to come with her from the house of the women to the king's house. They would give her whatever she would request. And that's what does that mean? So what that means, according to some commentaries, is that Ahasuerus was worried. You know, he's going to bring these women to him. They're going to be brought to him. And, uh, and if he doesn't like them, you know, he's going to have sexual relations with them. And then he's going to send them off if he doesn't want them. Now, he may have been, you know, this crazy monarch and powerful, and, but he didn't want people to, to despise him. So he kind of made a deal with them in a certain way, so that they would be agreeable to be with him. And that was that they could have whatever they want. You can have whatever you want. Whatever she would request would be given to her to come with her from the house of the women to the king's house. Whatever she would want, she could choose, she could have. Beautiful. He would lavish her with gifts. And that was kind of a deal. You know, I'm going to give you the gifts, but you might get sent home and you won't complain because you got all sorts of gifts. It might affect the rest of your life, but you'll have gotten the gifts and you won't complain. And that was why they were offered whatever they wanted to. We're going to see that Esther, again, refuses anything. Esther is not willing to come. Esther does not take any gifts in exchange. And she's forced to come, but she at no point agrees to this arrangement. Um, verse 14, still talking in general about the maidens in general. In the evening, she would go. And in the morning, she would return. So she would spend a night with the king. And she would return to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashkaz, the king's chamberlain. So now it's a different guy in charge of the women after they, they leave the king. Um, the guard of the concubines, she would no longer come to the king unless the king wanted her, and she was called by name. So some understand this to mean that she wasn't released back into, to, to go home. Some understand she was. Some understand this verse is saying, no, she would go to be permanently with the concubines, all of the women that Ahasuerus rejected as his queen, well, he didn't, these were, they were beautiful women. He kept them as concubines. If he would decide that he, he wanted, he wanted one to come to him, he could summon her. And uh, it was, uh, you know, a terrible, uh, terrible situation for whoever was not selected here. Um, and uh, as terrible as it was for Esther to be selected, but also it would be much worse to not be selecting and to just be one of the many of the king's concubines. So now we have Esther's turn comes. So verse 15, now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abichayel, Mordechai's uncle, who had taken her for a daughter, came to go to, into the king, she requested nothing. She said, I don't want anything. I'm not agreeing to this. I'm not taking any gifts. And also she only went when it was her turn. Meaning she didn't, she wasn't interested in this. She had to be forced to go. Um, except what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the guard of the women would say, and Esther obtained grace in the eyes of all who beheld her. So despite that she didn't ask for anything extra, she just, whatever Haggai did for her, that's what she, that's what she wore, that's what she make up and whatever, but she didn't do anything on her own, but yet she found, she obtained grace in the eyes of all who beheld her. The Talmud has an interesting comment here. It says, Rabbi Elazar said, this teaches that she appeared to each and every one as if she were a member of his own nation. 
How is it that, that she found favor in everyone's eyes? Everybody thought that she was one of them, that she was from their own nation. And the commentaries explain that this was very significant in her ability to cover up her identity. Again, you know, they knew that she had come from Mordechai's house. So seemingly she's a Jew, right? Why would she not be? She's come from Mordechai's house. But on the other hand, she had this thing about her that everybody just felt that she was one of them. And so that's how she was still able to maintain uh, and cover up her identity as a Jew, Jewess, because everybody had that feeling. And, uh, and she was able to find grace in the eyes of everybody. And now it's, now it's her turn to go before the king. So it says, verse 16, so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal house in the 10th month, which is the month of Teves, in the seventh year of his reign. And the Talmud says, it wasn't random that she was taken in the 10th month in, in Teves, um, which has just passed for us last month. It's a winter month. So the Talmud comments, Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal house in the 10th month. It was by act of divine providence that Esther was taken to Ahasuerus in a cold winter month in which the body takes pleasure in the warmth of another body. Meaning the timing here helped her that Ahasuerus appreciated her presence more. It's cold winter night. It's also a time that the nights are longer. She had more time spent with Ahasuerus. And, uh, and this helped just the, 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 the way it worked out, the timing was again of divine providence that it helped that, that she was selected. Um, now, despite all of her efforts to avoid, you know, to hide and avoid being selected, and even here, she doesn't go to the king. She is taken, right? Verse 16, it says, so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus. All along, she's fighting. She doesn't want to go. And in the end, Verse 17, and the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor before him more than all the maidens, and he placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Despite all of that, miraculously, out of all these women in the whole kingdom, Ahasuerus chooses Esther to be his queen. And uh, again, this is, uh, this is obviously one of the key moments like we start mentioned last week, we have these very obvious that we all know the key moments in the story. Vashti is killed. Um, Esther is chosen. Mordechai saves Ahasuerus' life. You know, and it's so amazing how all of these things just happen to work out all together. But like I said, when we take it a little slowly and we go verse by verse, we see how much more miraculous it is. So what we saw tonight was this miraculous event that Ahasuerus chooses Esther out of all the maidens. But if we understand it in context, it's how everything comes together and it's totally the opposite of, of, of what should have happened naturally. This is someone who was trying to avoid it. They should have been punished for trying to avoid it. They're not punished. She's doing nothing to help herself to be chosen. She does not want to be chosen. And, you know, still, despite that, the, 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 uh, 
even though she's she's doing everything she can to avoid it and that she minimize the chances completely to, to almost nothing that she'd be chosen, she's still chosen. And uh, and like we saw now, even just the, the way the timing works out, it's all divine providence of how she ended up being selected as queen. And uh, and this is again part of the 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 hidden miracle of Purim as uh, as the story goes on, that Esther is going to play such a pivotal role in saving the Jewish people. Next week, we'll finish off this, this chapter um, with the story of how Mordechai saves, um, saves the life of the king and how that's going to play an important part of the story. And then we'll continue on to chapter three, God willing. Thank you so much. Beautiful.